My name is Keith Beavers, and apparently it takes 19 minutes to fall from the North Pole to the Earth's core. Who did that math? Who found that out? Wile E. Coyote? I don't know. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tasting director of Vine Path. Yes. We're leaving France. I'm sorry. But it's really great because we're going to Spain. We got a bunch of Spanish episodes here. We're starting with Ribera del Duero. Ever heard of it? Oh, get ready. It's awesome. Today's episode is sponsored by Dark Horse, bold wine that outdelivers on quality, taste, and value for the price. The Dark Horse portfolio ranges from bold reds to crisp whites and bright bubblies. And here's the best thing. Dark Horse is available in bottles and cans, sparkling too. Just pop the top and say cheers. That's why they say victory is yours to define. Try Dark Horse. Visit BarrelRoom.com. Wow, wine lovers. How much fun did we have in France. How much knowledge did we gain about France? All those awesome French wines and all those French wine regions. Oh, it was great. And what's exciting is, I mean, I'm really excited to go to Spain. And I don't know, I think we got like, there's a list of the next, I think, five or so episodes is going to be about Spain. And the reason I'm excited about Spain is because besides Rioja and maybe Sherry, they're, and, well, and maybe the, the region we're talking about today, they're well known, but what do we really know about them? It seems like Spanish wine on the American market is dominated by Rioja and there's everything else. And then we have to learn about those wines to fall in love with them because they're here and they're not going anywhere. It's actually going to get, we're going to get even more wines from Spain on the American market in the future. So let's talk about this wine region right here, Ribera del Duero, because it is, I would like to say, how do I say this? It is one of the, uh, in America, it is one of the most famous wine regions from Spain outside of Rioja. And what's really wild about that is it's actually the neighbor of Rioja, but separated geologically from Rioja and stylistically, but with the same aging requirements. Oh my God, Keith. Okay, let's get into it. Oh, wait, before I get into it, if you want a little refresher, go ahead to season one. I have a whole Spain episode that does an overview of the entire country. And if you need a little bit of a refresher on Rioja, that's in season two. Okay, now we're going to get into it. As I talk about in the Spanish episode in season one, in the middle of Spain, sort of, kind of, yeah, in the middle of Spain, there's this huge plateau. It's called the Maceta Central, or the Central Tableland. In English, we call it the Inner Plateau. And this is a geographical unit that takes up a large part of the Iberian Peninsula that is Spain. And in the northern part of this plateau is the largest of the 17 autonomous regions of Spain, Castilla y León. Again, I mean, Spanish is a little bit easier for me to pronounce, but I still may not be getting it right. And I'm very sorry. And the northern part of this central plateau, it rises up to about over 3,000 feet above sea level. That's that's high, especially when you think it takes up at least one-fifth of the entire country. 
And the thing about this huge plateau, I mean, huge, it's so huge that it's mostly surrounded by mountain ranges. That's crazy. And these mountain ranges can help the wine situation in this region. Like in the north, you have a range of mountains called the Cantabrica. Cantabrica, I think it's called Cantabrica. And that is what that range protects this region from what's going on in the Bay of Biscay, which is a very stormy, wet environment. And then you have the Sistema Central, or the central system is a, a line of mountain ranges coming through the south of this region, separating it geologically from other places like Rioja and Madrid and places like that. Up here on this plateau, the summers are very short and extremely hot, and the winters are ferociously cold to the point where frost can sometimes linger into late into the spring. And sort of right in the middle of this autonomous region, Castilla y Leon, is the capital city of Valladolid. And east of that is a town called Arnada de Duero that is on the river Duero. We talk about that in the Spanish episode, but the Duero River... It's a very important river throughout history. It is the Duero, and it goes through north-central Spain. And then when it gets into Portugal, it goes through northern Portugal, and they call it the Douro River. This is where port is made. We have that coming up this season. But this town on the Duero River is the center of the largest DO, or wine appellation, in this autonomous region. There are nine of them here, but this is the largest one. It's called Ribera del Duero. Ribera means the bank, so the bank of the river Duero. And the region is literally straddle, well, it literally straddles the river north and south and spans about 60 miles east and west. This is Ribera del Duero. The thing is, this place is like a lot of places in the world has been making wine since the get there are archaeological there is archaeological evidence of wine being made only because they found a mosaic of bacchus so that makes sense um also here we go benedictine monks came from burgundy to this area to make wine and i believe that's kind of how it survived for as long as it survived because Ribera del Duero doesn't have the storied history of its neighboring, its neighbor to the east, Rioja. Ribera del Duero, for us on the American market, really came on the scene in the 1980s. Yeah, crazy. And the modern timeline of wine in this re, in, in Ribera del Duero is kind of simple, but kind of great in that. It starts with a wine called Vega Cecilia, a bodega, which is like wineries are called bodegas in Spain. And I'm sure you may have heard Vega Cecilia. It's pretty famous. They been make, they've been making wine in this area since like the, the late 1800s. And they were kind of the only kind of, I don't know, focused winemaker on the scene for a long time. This area was mostly known for co cooperative fruit. Wine growers or vine growers would just sell their fruit to the cooperative and make sort of bulk wine. But in the late 70s, in the early 80s, a guy by the name of Alejandro Fernandez thought, okay, there's potential here. We can do something better. We can make 
wine that has structure and character due to the soils, due to the climate. We're going to do this. And he made wine from vines that existed around a town called Pasquera del Duero. And he released, I think he released it in 1982. Well, the early 80s, he released the wine. And around this wine became internationally popular. And part of that is because in the 80s, in the United States, at least for our market, we were already getting enamored with big, full-bodied red wines. This wine was made from Tempranillo. Here they call it Tinto Fino and sometimes Tinta de País. But it kind of set a standard for wines being made in this area. And it quickly grew to about, I think, 200 winemakers in the area. The, st- the style of Ribera del Duero from the Tempranillo grape is not that of Rioja. It's more structured. It can be sometimes even a little more astringent. Tempranillo is usually dark in color, but these are inky in color, and their tannins are... This is a structured wine, and sometimes the wine actually needs a little bit of help to kind of soften it up a little bit, and there's a local white wine grape in the area called Albio, And this variety has a low acid white wine, kind of a full bodied white wine. Kind of reminds me a little bit about a little bit of Peak Pool de Penne, but it kind of adds some viscosity and lifts up the wine a little bit as it ages. And actually, as of 2020, the uh, Albillo variety can be made into a still wine and sold underneath the Ribera del Duero um, label. So that's pretty cool. There are other varieties in Ribeiro del Duero. You know, the, the international varieties have actually been there since for like well over 100 years, I think it's 130 years, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon. But also Garnacha is there, Grenache, and that's primarily used for their rosé. But what we're going to see on the American market is going to be just the red wines. And we're going to see white wines as well, but Ribeiro del Duero is everywhere on our market. It's not as prominent as Rioja, but it is there. And it's very popular because it has that full-bodiedness that we are used to on the American palate. Rioja gives us this sort of like almost elegance of Tempranillo, whereas Ribeiro del Duero gives us the more powerful, structured style of Tempranillo. And even though the aging requirements from in Ribeiro del Duero are identical to Rioja, the results are often different because of that heft. So let me just go really quickly over the aging requirements here. For Crianza, it needs to be two years minimum with 12 months in oak. For Reserva, three-year minimum with 12 months in oak. And for a Gran Reserva, five-year minimum with two years at least in oak. So same as Rioja, which you can listen to in the Rioja episode. But the result are these I also like to say, I like to say sometimes when wines are released, even when they're released, they can still be what I call sleeping giants. They're not ready yet. And even though Ribera del Duero can be released in that, in that way, they still are big wines. So that's basically Ribera del Duero. Go out there and look for them. I always find it so interesting how, you know, we look at wine, especially from Europe, as, as old as it is, it, it's... Sometimes in modern times, like really modern times, like the 80s, when things kind of get started for certain wine regions, it's kind of amazing how how quickly Ribera del Duero 
rose. I mean, I think the structure and the style of it is what helped it out, but also, you know, the quality. But I just find it fascinating that from like the Romans to the 12th century Benedictine monks to sort of modern times bulk wine cooperatives with like a few winemakers making quality wine, but not really making enough noise because they don't know how, even though this area has major trade routes because of the river and other uh, mountain passes. But then it just kind of sits there. And all of a sudden in the 1980s, a winemaker comes in and defines the, the, the standard of style in that area. It's just fascinating stuff. Okay, so that's Ribeiro del Duero. Get ready. Because of all the nine wine regions or DOs in Castilla, Castilla y Leon, Ribeiro del Duero is the largest. And there's another one that's very becoming very popular on our market. It's a place called Bierzo. They don't do Tempranillo there. They do a grape called Mencia. It's all kinds of cool. And we'll get into it next week. Vine Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. E&J Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.